welcome to this Academy of Ideas Economy Forum discussion of Britain's Brits fallen out of love with work. I'm Rob Lyons, and as well as being Science and Technology Director at the Academy of Ideas, I'm also the convener of the Economy Forum. Now, when the economy was put into a deep freeze during the COVID lockdowns, with millions of people paid a furlough when they couldn't go to work, um, many people, including me, were very concerned that the end of furlough might reveal that thousands of businesses were no longer viable and unemployment would rise sharply. But in fact, pretty much the opposite has happened. Workers seem to be in short supply, and not just in the UK, but in many other countries as well. And those staff shortages have lasted um, beyond sort of the immediate aftermath of, of lockdowns. According to the ONS, between November 2022 and January 2023, there were over 1 million vacancies in the UK. So in addition to the famous productivity puzzle, we now apparently have a participation puzzle. The House of Lords Economy Select Committee argues that falls in labour supply can impact inflation, economic growth and public finances. But why is this happening? Or is it really happening? Is this just a, a temporary blip? Um, for example, inflation is over 10%. And incomes have fallen substantially in real terms over the past year or so. So how can it be that so many jobs go begging? Before I introduce our speaker, I just want to say that the Academy of Ideas has made it our mission to promote thought-provoking public debate with the motto free speech allowed and with an emphasis on making audience members not just a panel of experts central to our style of discussion. If you'd like to chip in with the price of a pint or even a large round to support our work, please visit academyofideas.org.uk forward slash support. And there you go. My uh, colleague, Mo Lovitz, uh, helpfully put that link into the chat as well. Right, on to our speaker. Uh, I'll introduce very briefly. Uh, Linda Murdoch is a researcher on well-being and the work ethic. She's also the, the former director of careers at the University of Glasgow. Um, Linda will introduce this topic for about 10 minutes or so, and then it's over to you for your points and questions. So I'll unmute. Oh, yes, no. So I'll pin Linda, and uh, I think you're good to go. Okay, thanks, Rob. Good evening, everyone. Um, tonight, I really don't want to talk about um, jobs or the, the kind of quality of jobs or the structure of the labour market. What I really want to discuss and trying to get underneath is the uh, our subjective relationship with work. Um, and I want to argue that, um, uh, you know, we our subjective relationship to work has changed. And the reasons for that are in relation to the long term erosion of the work ethic. And when I'm talking about the work ethic, um, I mean, the, uh, the two strands, I work ethic that's got two strands, not just the kind of I work because I need money, but also the uh, moral strand, the moral component of the work ethic. And this component has been somewhat um, ignored uh, or, or somewhat neglected by the left. You seem to rely on the notion that people uh, only work uh, to get money to live so they can go and do other things. And I think this is erroneous. The second moral component is very, very important because in the past, um, workers took pride in their work, even from the lowliest cleaner or, 
or people who did fairly lowly jobs upwards, there was a sense that you were putting in. And if you couldn't, that was a source of shame uh, because you were not doing your bit. So this was the, the moral component of relationship to work. And I think it's the erosion of this that's causing these changes in our subjective relationship to work. And, and I think we can see those impacts uh, going on day to day with all the discussion about why uh, people seem to have an antipathy to work. Now, Talcott Parsons, um, writing about the sick role after World War II, was really clear about the social contract between the individual and society, because if you couldn't work and you, because you were sick, you had to get permission from the doctor to be absent from work in, ret in, re in return for a sick note. You didn't get the sick note just so that you could get money to, to, to pay your, your family, you know, pay for your, your, yourself and your family while you were off sick. But that sick role was to save you from the shame of not being able to put to do your bit. It is this moral component of our relationship with work that has been eroded. It's a long-term estrangement from what we used to talk about our social product, um, regardless of the type of work we do, uh, the money we make. Um, and I think it's important to, for us to understand that because we, until we understand that, we won't understand how important it is to put it back. I think there's some public recognition that our, our subjective relationship with work has changed. And you can really see that the way that, uh, you know, after the pandemic, we had this furlough scheme, which arguably went on far too long. But no one seemed too bothered about trying to force people to come back to work. And I think that was a sign of our shared recognition that work wasn't really doing for us what it used to. In support of this change to our subjective uh, relationship to work, um, in 2019, the Resolution Foundation reported that over the past 30 years, despite marked improvements in our physical and social conditions of work and in a, a growing loyalty we had to employers, workers of all levels felt really used up um, um, and work by work and it becomes so much more intense. They felt it becomes so much more intense. Um, and not just talking about blue collar workers, you know, uh, workers who historically are not supposed to get any kind of personal fulfillment out of what they do. Um, and we can all remember the the kind of the HGV drivers and the, the vegetable and fruit pickers complaining about how demanding and stressful and, and awful uh, their work was. But it was actually the kind of more professional middle class jobs, um, white collar jobs. Um, that really uh, for quite a long time now have been been professing this uh, antipathy, antipathy to work, threatening to leave uh, nurses, GPs, you name it, anybody in the public who works in the public sector is now seen as estranged from their their work. Um, for, you know, for the past ten years, at least uh, between thirty and thirty five percent of teachers, newly, newly qualified teachers. <laughs> Uh, have left work within five years of qualifying because it's just too much for them. The most interesting aspect, I think, of the great resignation uh, uh, post-pandemic, uh, where a half a million of the over 50s decided that enough was enough, was not the way they was was really the way they talked about their jobs when they left. They said that they were not appreciated by their co-workers. One of the reasons why they left was they were not appreciated by their co-workers. So all the years that they'd worked had been wasted. Um, it'd been, their work had been a waste of time. 
They were now regretting all the sense of purpose they gave to the best years of their lives in their jobs. In other words, they were saying that the years of purposeful activity were not appreciated, so they, they decided to leave. What these people are really saying is that what many others of that particular generation um, are thinking, that the purposeful aspects of work, like making decisions, creating ideas, making judgments and problem solving, are being shoved into the background of work with well-being policies. These people are expressing it's difficult to continue to work in the same purposeful way when you keep coming up, up against policies and attitudes which position purposeful activity as demanding and harmful to the well-being of others. When these ways of working dominate your work experience, it is not surprising that you eventually conclude that all that effort you put into making your work effective was just a waste of your time. Put differently, these uh, resignees no longer felt valued for trying to make a difference. In other words, their resignation from work shouldn't be viewed as a physical retreat from work, but a mental retreat from the idea that work is socially progressive. And that is what uh, I mean by the kind of erosion of this moral component. This mental retreat from the idea uh, uh, that work is socially progressive can really be seen in, in the public sector at the moment, and also discussions around the public um, sector strikes, um, there, there, you know, there is some debate out there about whether the public should support these strikes. Um, the, you know, the teacher unions, um, it, some would really argue that they played a fairly ignominious role um, during the pandemic because they did everything to stop kids getting back into schools and to stop uh, students going back into the classroom. Um, and, you know, their union leaders, these, the leaders of these unions, uh, called the, the people they were supposed to serve um, plague bearers. Um, and some would argue that they, these people striking at the moment um, are continuing to, to at only attack those that they're supposed to be serving because it doesn't seem to be having an impact on anybody else apart from parents um, and, and, um, and, and kids and students. Um, some people argue there are better ways to make a pay claim than attacking uh, those you purport to serve. And you can all see this with the GPs and you know the A and E and 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 during the pandemic and even after, you know, uh, you the public are a nuisance. Stay away. Um, you know the out, the outcomes from the the pandemic we're, we're living with of this. Uh, stay away. We're living with at the moment. Um, a friend of mine um, told me the other day there was an entrance in her G there was a post in her GP surgery which said, "Our doctors are stressed and overworked. Please be patient and kind." In other words, it's you, um, you who are supposed to be serving um, that are part of the problem here. And also, when you hear the union leaders, you know I'm not talking about ordinary uh, union members here, but when you hear the union leaders on the radio. Um, pleading with the government to, to come and talk to them. Um, it's couched in, uh, it's not couched in, uh, we provide a public service, so we deserve more pay. Um, it is, these jobs are mentally demanding and they're harming us, so give us more pay. Um, so what you've got is this, uh, this move from, you know, what being uh, socially progressive and socially supportive to this idea that what harms us and it's a threat to us. And this notion of work being bad for us is reflected in the term producer capture, which I hope some of you have heard about. 
um, it's been applied to work more generally. What producer capture means is that the service that is delivered is measured not by the quality to you as a customer or citizen, but, but, but by how it affects the well-being um, of the worker producer. In other words, the service I'm going to provide you depends on how I feel, not on what you need. You can really see this in civil service, of course, um, this idea of producer capture. You know, during the pandemic, pensioners didn't get their pensions, holidaymakers didn't get their passports to go on trips, would-be drivers didn't get their licence, there was a slide in the preparation of criminal records and delays and people getting their tax sorted out. No, this was all because the civil service needed to stay at home, take care of their mental health. Um, and when uh, uh, Jacob Rees Mall had the temerity to suggest that civil servants got back to work, he was called a bully. Right throughout the, uh, all the newspapers reported that he was just a bully. Um, so there it is. Um, Employers, the suggestion you do your job of bullies, you're not allowed to ask workers to fill their contract because it could harm their mental health. So there's this idea that work is not about this kind of, um, you know, um, progressive thing anymore. Um, it's much more about, it's much, it's actually associated with being damaging to you. Witness those today reports uh, of, of people going back to work. I mean, there've been some reports of a trickle of people actually going back to work. They're already complaining of burnout back from the commute um, at the office environment where anything could happen to them. And these are the, the kind of messages that are coming through that work is actually bad for you. Now, can, I think it's important to understand that this long evolving estrangement from work has not come from the workers themselves. It's not us. Uh, you know, we're not getting up every day and going, I just can't be bothered. It's too stressful. I, you know, I, all of a sudden my, you know, my mental health impacted by my work. This estrangement from our social product, from the purposefulness of work, is because capitalism has inescapably changed. Capitalists no longer take responsibility for the expansion of capital in the old way. They have outsourced that responsibility to managers have organised production and service delivery around the notion um, that uh, it damages our well-being. Of course, this, uh, and I'm sure some of you are, are aware of all of those kind of wellness policies um, in the workplace. This outlook of uh, protecting your, your mental health, protecting your well-being, is aligned, of course, uh, with changes in our education system, where since the start of the 21st century, kids were taught, have been taught that introspection of their feelings trumps knowledge learning. They're, 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 they are taught now to think about how they feel about things before uh, they, think about, they think about how they think about things. We are surrounded by therapeutic impulses which encourage us to think about our feelings first and foremost meaning that we are urged to push responsibility away in case it hurts us. In other words, our tolerance towards anything that might impact our well-being has contracted. And this has contributed to the alteration of our attitudes to work. We're conditioned into thinking we might be fragile and not able to cope with stress and accountability, which is associated with work. 
And I think this is also driving the kind of, uh, you know, work is harmful uh, idea. The state is also therapeutic um, and inadvertently uh, peddles the notion that work is harmful to us. It encourages dependency and there are way too many people for whatever reason this country dependent on the state instead of their own efforts to sustain themselves. If you look at the figures, um, there are 5.3 million economically inactive. Uh, I was truly shocked by this figure when I first came across it. It's the size of Scotland's population. Um, in some towns in the UK, between 20 and 25% of the workforce uh, are on uh, 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 work benefits, which is a huge figure. Uh, 20, yeah, 20, between 20 and 25 of the, the workforce. Um, these, you know, conditioned to thinking that they serve a better purpose being at home than, uh, than out in, in work. Universal basic income, the idea of giving those who, for whatever reason, cannot or will not work a wage uh, to get by on is widespread. Um, in fact, our benefit system, I think, to some extent, is reflecting much of that. Um, at the talk I did at the Battle of Ideas, I attacked the Welsh government's experiment um, of uh, um, universal basic income, um, where uh, they were going to offer young people £19,000 a year to stay at home. Another member of the panel took me up on this by implying that I should not criticise it because the 500 young people that they were getting offered this were those that were leaving care. Um, and I thought that retort really uh, highlights what I'm trying to say here. He was basically saying these poor kids shouldn't be expected to work. They've had such a hard life instead of what will give them purposeful activity from which they should benefit much more in terms in terms of that than a state handout would give them where they would be encouraging further dependency. I think it's very worrying uh, that if you look at the, the numbers of those in the economically inactive category, the strand in it that is growing is those claiming benefits for sickness and disability. That that strand is actually getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And if formally, I think the government thought that uh, it was people coming out, you know, coming out of work because they weren't well, but it's not. This uh, strand is of people who've been on, who've been economically incapacitated for a while, or on economic activity for a while, and have entered and are now claiming sickness as part of that. Um, in other words, not working is bound to make you sick. The more you're economically inactive, the more likely you are to get ill. The government's picked up on this, um, and um, this the irony on this might not might be lost on some of you. It might not be lost on some of you. The government have picked up on this fact that not working might make you sick, and they're they're toying with the idea of putting job coaches into GP surgeries. So you can go to your GP surgery to get a job, but you can't get a GP appointment. A really big problem with this estrangement from work, as far as I'm concerned, um, this estrangement from the, the moral component of work as a purposeful social activity, is that it also means we're simultaneously estranged from key aspects of ourselves that develop our personal autonomy. Dominic Raab uh, may lose his job, um, 
because he exercised one of those, the most important characteristics of human behavior that makes us different from animals, and that is he's guilty of judging. He judged a member of staff's uh, paper that he asked him to do as not good enough. He said, I can't expect, I can't accept this. Um, it's not good enough. And because of that, he may be sacked. What this says is that all these human activities that require us to make choices, to judge, make decisions, are being targeted as microaggressions and outlawed in the workplace as damaging to us. This is what we mean when we say that work is being organized, not around productivity, not around social productivity, but around how it affects our feelings. In the workplace, the very behaviors which differentiate from animals are being degraded. And for this reason, but not only for that reason, we have to find a way to rehabilitate that sense of work uh, as making a social contribution to progress. In other words, we have to get back that moral component of work, that idea that is incumbent on us all to make a social contribution. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. And that was very thought provoking. And there's plenty of uh, disagreement in the chat as well. So, um, uh, so if you would like to contribute uh, on camera or voice only, you don't have to have camera on if you don't want to. Uh, if you go to the bottom of the screen, it's usually at the bottom of the screen, you'll see a reactions button. And if you click on that, you can raise hand and I'll, I'll take you and you can ask a question, you can make a point, you can do whatever you want. Um, there's a, some interesting discussion going on in the chat already about what makes making work pay and, uh, and about um, whether in fact that the genuine is a, a real rise in long term sick because so, so many people are waiting for NHS appointments. But please say those, uh, elaborate on those points on camera if you wish. <clears throat> uh, so I'll first of all ask uh, Daniel Bellamy to comment. Uh, yeah, can you hear me? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I've just got a question because uh, I think I understood what Linda was arguing. I agree with the thrust of it. In other words, that the work ethic has really weakened and instead of that, we have a real lack of a sense of resilience among the workforce. But I'm not sure if what is being argued is that that explains labour shortages to a large extent, uh, because as far as I can see from the stats, the uh, economy is going back to the long-term trends, um, which are problematic trends, but going back to towards long-term trends in terms of the labour market, uh, or is it affecting the people in work? So this kind of moral shift that Linda talks about, is it primarily about people in work, or is it an explanation for labour shortages, or is it both? Okay, that's that's great. Uh, John Holbrook. Linda, I thought your argument was very interesting, and uh, and I think uh, you you definitely hit on something. But I I, I I noticed that you pushed the notion of well-being uh, being pushed in the workplace as being one of the central reasons why this work ethic has has waned. Um, because it seems to me what you're doing there is by elevating well-being. You're talking about the individual's rights to good health, mental health, and so on and so forth, rather than the collective objective which any enterprise or business ought to have, which is about providing a service. 
Um, so I, I don't doubt for one minute that, 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 that well-being is very important, as it is a very important way in which that work ethic, that, that if you like, that collective sense of endeavour has been uh, challenged. But I think there's a, at least one other very important component which has brought about this weakening of the work ethic and the sense that people feel alienated from the workplace, and, and that is wokery. Which, which you haven't actually mentioned at all, but surely that is a factor because if there is a political narrative which is now being peddled in the workplace, which there undoubtedly is, whether it's with big capitalist enterprises or with public sector bodies or indeed any of the professions, if, for example, from your workplace, you have to send out an email which requires as a signature that you support Black Lives Matter, or that you are committed to a, this, actually, this is not just a wokery issue, there's general politics comes into this as well. If, if, for example, you have to say, we are committed to a carbon neutral future. You know, if you have to sort of mouth all of those political ideas and you don't believe in them, and if you're worried that if you challenge them, either in your private life or uh, in the workplace, you might lose your job, then that creates a pretty alienating state of affairs, doesn't it? And isn't that perhaps a, an, another aspect to this debate um, wh which we need to, to, to factor in? Okay, good. Well, right. well we're getting a, a broad range of uh, ideas in here as well. So um, next is Parr and Mullen. Oh, sorry. Oh. Can you hear me? You can hear me, yeah? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, thanks, Linda. Uh, very useful, very uh, challenging. Uh, the thoughts really to think about. I think, um, I mean, John's got a point. Uh, Walkery definitely doesn't help. Uh, but the whole weakening of the work ethic, I think, goes back well before all. I mean, it's almost been a process, hasn't it, over the years in terms. So if you think about the whole discussion uh, of work-life balance, I mean, that in itself kind of pushes the... Uh, pushes you to think that work somehow is very separate from your life. So work has been kind of put on a pedestal as being a bit of a problem. And I remember uh, in the uh, 90s, there was quite a lot of discussion about uh, work being toxic and it was openly written about. So the way I kind of look at it is that it's over the years, it's slowly been becoming more and more, uh, you know, the notion that work is a problem. And uh, clearly, if you look at education, there's a poll that recently came out where uh, it said that three quarters, I think, uh, quite a lot of the students um, um, were making the point that they all have a mental problem and it's almost like as if, if everything that you do um, is um, made into sickness illness I'm not that surprised that work isn't prioritized or thought of uh, or the work ethic and uh, certainly uh, the work sort of stuff that John was talking do is made out it's in a, as a problem and it's not part of life or the checked problems I, I, I'm not 
particularly surprised that you know work ethic uh, has weakened enormously. Um, there was an article, and I'll end on this. There was an article that was written by Sarah O'Connor, the uh, FT uh, Labour person, who talked about, who separated out work from a job that people actually, you know, so if you speak to teachers and if you speak to doctors or nurses, often they will make the point that they actually like the work as in the purpose of what they are doing. But the job in that the environment they're working in, in terms of lack of resources or um, uh, uh, not good pay, so the idea of filling many forms as opposed to doing purposeful work, um, kind of takes. You no, know, she had a point really uh, in 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 terms of uh, you know work. People are horrible. Uh, Oh, <laughs> I think that's, that was coming for a while, unfortunately, due to that poor connection. Uh, I'll bring Linda back in to, to uh, pick up on any of those points that you'd like to at this stage. But um, there's a few things going on in the chat. I don't know if you've noticed about the, the question of, um, you know, poor wages meaning work doesn't pay. And uh, uh, in terms of uh, this uh, the interesting question from Syrah about, what does what would it take for people to fall back in love with work or to re-establish at least this worker ethic? Um, so anything you want to pick up on just now, you don't have to pick up on everything, but just anything that's grabbed you so far. Yes. Um, on John's point about walkery, um, the key, one of the key components of walkery is be kind. So the therapeutic is completely embedded in mockery. Um, and if you read any of the readers' comments uh, on articles about the workplace in any kind of like newspapers or, or online, a lot of the older generation, uh, the reason why they hate work uh, or have left work is because they call it because of mockery of the young managers um, peddling these well-being policies. So yeah, um, I, I you know I, I suppose I I just see them as interchangeable, um, but you know to me the the whole kind of uh, therapeutic uh, impulse in society really kind of underwrites uh, the the kind of the whole woke stuff because you know that's that's a key component of the black wise martyr you know you shouldn't you shouldn't speak the truth because it hurts people. Um, you know, the, the transgender stuff is exactly the, the same kind of thing. Um, on uh, uh, Paris' point, uh, I think that it, it's really useful to uh, whoever is making a distinction between doing the job and what they think the purpose of the job is. Um, and I think that that's really quite important that, you know, doctors and teachers <clears throat> and other public sector workers they may go into the job because they want to make a difference. But once they act about, you know, social, they want to make a social contribution. So, you know, that's like a kind of moral component of, of the work ethic. Once they get in it, 
the the a lot of the job is kind of bogged down with uh, ticking boxes and doing admin, and I think that that's that means that their their uh, autonomy in the job is is really uh, you know it's minimised and they're not able to to uh, exert that kind of social um, aspect of the job that you know doing doing good and you know so it's arguable that you know on to go on strike. Um, in order to be effective, in order to get an effective strike or effective, um, you know, a, a, um, defence of wages, that's what they ought to attack. They ought to attack these administrative things and only do the aspects of the job that, you know, are, are socially purposive. Um, and that would be a far more effective way to draw attention to their claims for pay um, and also to show that... Uh, uh, this is a really important thing I'm doing here because at the moment um, the public, I, I mean, I don't think the public particularly support these strikes, you know, because you know the, the they're not getting the benefits of of that social input from the the public sector workers. They they see the public sector workers as pushing them away, saying that they are useless. Um, so I think that that's quite a useful way of of actually thinking about. Uh, socially purpose work and, and the actual job itself day by day and um, if they're able to minimize the, the bits of the job that are nothing to do with with support and, and so the, the social aspects that may uh, actually help okay I, I mean uh, you've just reminded me of a couple of things what is a, a a tv show called getting on i don't know if anybody else has watched it it's about 10 or 15 years old now it's joe brand and Joanna Scanlon working as nurses in a, um, a care ward or a, a, a hospital ward for older people. Um, but And then the new young gun sort of graduate manager comes in and like yeah, they're just the, the clash of sort of ideals about what, what work is about between those two. Um, and also there was this report today, I think it was by EY, formerly Ernest and Young, uh, who were... Um, talking about the four-day week and what a great success it had been in. Um, and that's many of the employers who've been on this pilot scheme are going to carry it on. First of all, they, the, 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 the company that they chose to, uh, on the BBC to talk about it, was an environmental consultancy. So as far as I'm concerned, a, a bullshit job par excellence. Um, and they've been able to some, somehow fa- find a way of... Um, reducing from five days to four days with no loss of pay. But also the, the way that they'd done it was, well, we have shorter meetings and we've got rid of a lot of admin. So their, ju- their working lives have just become more productive in the sense that they just get on with what's specifically related to the job and getting rid of a lot of the things that get in the way of the job, as, uh, as Linda has described. Um, I, I want to go, go back to Daniel's point as well, though, because maybe we're talking about two slightly... St- different things and we've got labour shortages at the moment and so I don't know if anybody else knows the figures on what is a typical number of vacancies at any particular time because you would assume that there's a churn of like when we're talking about there being a million vacancies that they're not the same vacancies all the time that there's you know there's a a million at any time but you know it's different job vacancies all the time 
and what would be a normal level it would be half a million or three quarters of a million or whatever so so what's specific about now that's creating labor shortages and is that just a blip versus these longer term trends which i think linda's uh, are talking about very interestingly about our attitudes to work more generally and what that means for example about productivity i mean are we just are we just going through the motions now and maybe another question as well is are, are we something of a bit of a golden age that maybe in the past we especially with more manual work that people would do the the, the minimum because it was such grindingly boring work or whatever uh, you know, and, and that maybe that hasn't changed at that level of society you know, of, of the jobs market um anyway mo um yeah probably made this point to Linda before so apologies for repeating myself a little bit but I just wanted to come back to your um point on that you made quite early on that there's this sense that purposeful activity has been lost um and I appreciate what you're saying about you know the change in nature of capitalism and the fact that leadership has been outsourced to management particularly HR I would suggest um and then that does sort of have an impact on certainly I know friends I speak to don't feel that they can have kind of purposeful um, comradeship in the in the workplace because, you know, they're frightened to say the wrong thing or the fright to be ostracised in the workplace. There's, there's definitely a sense that people are being a much less relaxed about um, the, their place in the workplace kind of socially, uh, I suppose. But um, I, I suppose that ha I, I would suggest it's maybe combined with the fact that people are finding purposeful activity in other avenues of life you know somebody mentioned about the the work-life balance and I, I think that's particularly true with young people I mean I was struck by um in America there's an anti-work movement um the idea being why should we wait be wage slaves and this is a great way to bring down capitalism and you know it was kind of gaining quite a currency in the sense that just working for the machine was perpetuating um perpetuating a harmful system um which i found was quite interesting but also on the london underground there's a, there's an advert at the minute saying he's got a young sort of trendy looking guy on the poster saying i'm a barista i'm a, a flyer i'm a, a barman i'm a cleaner i'm all of these things well i'm not all of these things actually i'm just a person and i just do all these jobs to sustain my lifestyle uh, in other words works just a means for me to kind of find and purposeful activity in another arena of life. So I just wondered, there's obviously a trend, isn't there? And is that is that part of the fact that work isn't isn't as meaningful as it was? You know, the the kind of and that we have lost that sense of community. I mean, I'm maybe making a bit of a parody, but from working down the mines, which created communities and solidarity and a real sense of belonging to kind of service industries where you're just stuck behind a computer and answering call centre and um, phone calls. There's lots of different sort of trends going on there, isn't there? In, in a sense, um, it almost feels like inevitable, Linda. So so what's the, what's the kind of solution for imparting purposeful activity back into the meaning of work? Okay, great. Yeah, I mean, and I suppose in terms of the meaningfulness of work, the sending everybody home to work in the kitchen table um, uh, doesn't really help with that that regard in terms of a sense of uh, workplace solidarity. Um, I'll take Carlton Brick next, and then James Woodhouse. Uh, Hi there. Can you hear me? Yeah. Hi. Um, 
Well, just following on from what uh, Mo, Mo was saying, I think kind of it's important to distinguish between a job, what we do to make a living, earn money, and the work ethic. Because I think the work ethic isn't just simply about work. It's a much bigger organizing uh, cultural principle that, that, than that. Um, it's kind of, I, I was quite interested. So I went back and looked at why, or I was interested in why Christopher Lash had not written a chapter in Culture of Narcissism on the degradation of work. He writes about the degradation of everything else, but it, it doesn't seem to be anything there on the degradation of work. And when I went back and looked at it, basically the critique of the collapse of the work ethic underpins everything that he argues about the emergence of the therapeutic uh, culture. Because uh, So from the my sense of the, kind of, we're not just simply talking about work as in the thing we do. There's a kind of much bigger cultural uh, framework here, which is about character, which is about hope, which is about investing in the future. It's about working together to produce what, what some of the things that Linda's talking about. And the point that Lash makes, and this kind of feeds into what Parra was, was kind of saying, and he's writing in the late 60s, the 70s, and he's talking about that the, the work ethic as a form of self-improvement has been replaced by the ethic of self-preservation. So the kind of the, the we no longer engage in purposive activity to make ourselves better and therefore makes society better, a better place. We do it to protect ourselves. And I'm kind of interested in following some of the discussions on the chat. And, and it kind of seems that there is this, uh, we seem to have, not just on the chat, but I think more generally, we seem to now equate economic worth i.e. what I get paid to do with my job, with moral worth, I work as a, as a defining characteristic, as a kind of principle upon which I should engage in society to make society a better place. So I think there's a, a distinction to be made between jobs, the things we do to make a living. I hate my job. It's very, very boring. I don't get paid enough. However, I do it to the best of my ability. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. That's for you to to decide. But that, that there is a distinction between the two, I think, and I think that needs to be kind of made quite clear that kind of the work ethic isn't just simply about work in that narrow sphere of this is something I do to make a living. Okay, uh, James Woodhausen. Well, I, I must congratulate Linda on a, a really stimulating introduction. Uh, I've just got two small points to make and then a, a, a sort of historical one. Um, the, the, the small points is, where is profitability in all of this? I mean, I, I think the what you're talking about in terms of morals and uh, ambition contributing to society, uh, stripped of any um, nostalgic overtones, which you didn't indulge in, but we can easily be interpreted as indulging in how wonderful it was to go down a mine uh, and all of that. Uh, I appreciate that profitability is different in the public sector, um, but uh, you know the the economics hasn't completely gone away, uh, as I, I'm sure we'd all agree. The second thing is rather ironically is um, you know how much safer and easier getting back pain in a public sector service job is 
than going down a mine. It's it's an irony, isn't it? That the 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 craze for wellness uh, and all of that, uh, which obviously has a strong mental dimension today, um, takes place at a time when you know to trip over a bit of bad wire management in the office is about the worst thing that's going to happen to you compared with a mining disaster. Yes, there's the back pain. Many of the old complaints have gone, but you don't hear much about back pain, back pain, legionnaires, disease, uh, and all of those, um, you know, things in the past. Now, just on the historical note, which may be useful to people, and I've done, I can circulate uh, a very large document on the history of the office. I'll certainly send it to you, Linda. Um, and that's the discussion on presenteeism, which is very interesting, right? Because one of the striking things today is the ferocity with which working from home fans defend their position. You know, they, they and where does that come from? Because it's one, you know, many of us work from home, no problem at one level. We could talk about bossware and intrusion, but, uh, and that's worse at home than, uh, it is at work. You've got more chance of resistance at work. Um, but uh, if you take presenteeism, it in fact, just for the record, and then I'll shut up, it began, the discussion began, in, interestingly enough, in the International Journal of Health Services in 1982, uh, in an article by Berlingue, but not the Italian Communist Party leader, called Diseases Suffering, Deviation, Danger, signal and stimulus well that's fairly interesting uh, and then it meant showing up when you were ill or doing extra work when you were ill uh, but then by the 90s um feminist labor bigwig patricia hewitt who's back in the news um widened the concept and protested the against the idea that time spent in the workplace was a symbol of commitment there uh, it's called About Time, the Revolution in Work and Daily Life. Uh, and again, you see the contrast to which Linda referred, the contrast between work and life, you know. So that was in uh, 1993. And um, it didn't take long for Britain's Mr. Stress, Carrie Cooper, Sir Carrie Cooper, who's actually an American, um, to say that presentism, presenteeism was... Um, I uh, identified for him as being work in the flesh, but not in the mind. So that that thing that, you know, Linda pointed to you when you're there, but you're not really there. Uh, lack of psychological availability at work, he said. That was in Creating Healthy Work Organizations, 1994. That's nearly 30 years ago. Then the TUC took it up. And, uh, you know, said so there was a long hours culture and culture of presenteeism across Europe. Um, and uh, so it went, that was in 2006. Um, and then the, uh, by the time of the Olympics, interestingly enough, which isn't that different from the exercises that they want you to do at work. Uh, now, by the way, Linda's note about, um, you know, GPs, uh, offering you work help is also complemented dialectically almost by employers, especially in America where there's health insurance, but now employers here um, more concerned with individual personal 
healthcare and intruding on that. But when the Olympics took place, TUC Chief Brendan Barber uh, said that it was an ideal opportunity for more employers to try out flexible working uh, practices and everybody could um, benefit from uh, that. And it will be good for productivity and staff uh, motivation. It will already prove so. Those things you don't hear much about now. So, um, I, I, you know, what, what I'm saying is that I, I hope it's complementary to the thesis advanced that there's a long history to this. It's always been accompanied by medical and psychobabble. Uh, the Labour and the TUC have kind of led it. Uh, and now, you know, insofar as there is discussion, everybody takes it as read that, you know, there's a whole lot of presenteeism uh, going on. Having said that, there is a little bit of it going on. You know, when I when I was a boss of 35 people at Phillips, you know, I got there first. Why? Because I wanted their respect in the morning. So I was there uncharacteristically nowadays at sort of eight o'clock. So that was a bit of special presenteeism, uh, if you like. I hope that's useful. Uh, I've got all the references and can send it on. Um, the toxic bosses discussion, by the way, begins in the 90s as well. Uh, you know, so I, I think the end of the Cold War, not that it's directly related, but the, the post-89, you know, social uh, evolution is very important in all of this, even if it has the usual prefaces like Berlinguay in the 80s. Okay, thanks. Um, Phil Mullen. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think James has introduced some uh, uh, very interesting complementary points, but it, it just adds to the fact that there's multiple discussions going on and could go on, as is often the case with the economy forums. Um, uh, I think, um, certainly I think the discussion about labour market shifts and changes and what's pandemic related and what isn't is too big a topic to uh, uh, deal with in the context of of Linda's uh, you know introduction, so perhaps that's something we could come back to, um, because as I think Daniel's put in the the latest statistics and stuff, and I think there is a lot of interesting stuff in there. But perhaps we could come back to that at a different forum. I think in terms of Linda's thesis, um, I think the the job versus work distinction that Carlton's made and that Para made, and quoting Sarah O'Connor, I think that's definitely one that's worth thinking through um, uh, as to the difference in terms of work as a concept and, and, and job. Perhaps another way of looking at that is whenever you said, Linda, that um, you were going to focus on the subjective relationship to work, it might help to separate out uh, the narrative about work. So the subjective in a big sense, you know, how work is discussed in society and by the elite as opposed to, or distinguishing that from people's attitudes to work uh, or to their jobs, which I, I mean, the two interact or the, the two are connected in some way, but they're also separate. Uh, and I think that was, for example, answered John's point, which I think uh, John Holbrook's point, which I think is right. And that, you know, what goes on within work uh, and it's not just wokery, but it goes back to the whole, as, as Power was saying, the whole sort of, you know, human resource movement within work, which Linda knows well as well, the whole way in which work has become uh, not about the thing you do, but about process and uh, feelings and so on. But but that that um, uh, aspect of 
that aspect of uh, uh, of work is something which is um uh, you know i say it goes back a long way but i think the distinction between the two helps i say to explain john's point because when you have an unattractive nature of work that work is uh, more about um uh you know the tick box ticking and and the regulations and the hr rules and and what you can say and what you can't say and therefore the anxieties which that creates and so on that you know will color people's personal attitudes towards work which is quite consistent with the general culture in which work is demonized so distinguishing between the two i think would strengthen your thesis in terms of explaining why work has become disparaged in the way it is. And there, I think your emphasis on the therapeutic is entirely appropriate, is enti uh, uh, entirely appropriate, which then confirms um, Carlton's point that we're not really talking about work as what goes on in work. We're talking about something which is broader within society. Because when you have a, this therapeutic culture in which everything, it's not just work that makes us ill, but everything makes us ill, you know, eating makes us ill, breathing makes us ill, um, you know, education makes us ill. As you, as you quoted, Linda, you know, the, the discussion about economic inactivity is that not working makes us ill. Well, when all that is happening, it's hardly surprising that work is discussed as something which uh, uh, makes us ill as well. So it's understanding how work is perceived through that narrative is symptomatic of something much, much broader. Um, I think one, if I could just because I ran on what was right, I think one specific thing within this, the, the, the sort of pandemic triggered statistics, which is worth looking at, is the, uh, and which is much more important, I think, than the early retirement trend, but is the amplification of people self identifying as being sick. And it's something which applies both to um, people in work and people out of work. And, and I think that, so, so the discussion takes both sides to it. It's both saying that, you know, the reasons people feel that they can't work is because they feel they're ill. And the reason that people find work so, so you know, off-putting is because of the climate that leads them to think that work is making you ill. So the two, the, the two things coexist. I mean, I, I looked at the figure, it's quite striking. The, the increase, I mean, I've just looked back to 2010 or so, but the increase in number of people who, who are categorized as disabled. In, in the working age population overall, it's gone from about one in six in the early part of last decade, I think 2013 is when the statistics begin. So about one in six people categorized as, as disabled officially by the ONS. On the eve of the pandemic, that had gone up to just under one in five. And now it's, it's over 22%. So it's actually increasing and, and heading towards one in four. So, you know, and that's of 40 million or whatever of the working age population. And that applies, I say, both to people in work and to people out of work. In fact, it's mainly people in work who are being identified as disabled has increased much more over the last 10 years. And that's been amplified again by, by the pandemic. For people not in work, it was increasing slowly, the number of people not in work saying that they're uh, uh, disabled or being categorized that way. And again, that's, that was increasing slowly and then has jumped over the last three years. So it, it's an indication, if you look at that aspect of it, just the way in which people both, and there's lots of other ways of looking at this, there's self-reported self illness, there's the reasons people give that they feel 
um, uh, uh, that work has caused their ill health and so on. Uh, an interesting generational distinction is if you look at, uh, at what I find quite striking, there was a doubling in the number of people applying for disability benefits last year. And that, that's been a figure that's been fairly flat, but it's doubled last year. Um, and in that there's a generational distinction is that older people mostly give the reason of physical problems as to why they, they seek to uh, register as disabled. Whereas for people in their 20s, it's primarily mental reasons that are given uh, uh, mental stress and anxiety and depression and so on. So quite a quite a, a, an interesting uh, uh, generational distinction, which confirms one of point Linda's points in terms of the impact of socialization on young people uh, and the way they perceive life and therefore work with, within life. Just very last point if I can link to that um, disability side. I think there's another area that's worth, or one area that's worth looking at, which I know Linda's touched on in, in some of the work she's done before, is the way in which government benefits, and you may mention this in your introduction, but the way in which government benefits actually reinforce this idea that work isn't, doesn't pay and isn't worth doing. Um, uh, some of us who've a bit older will remember the discussion in the 1980s and the 90s about the number of people who went on to invalidity benefit encouraged by the government rather than going unemployed, rather than going on the unemployment figures. There's a bit of an element of that, I think, which is worth looking at today. The number of people on um, uh, uh, EPS, is, is it the, uh, the uh, Employment and Support um, uh, Alliance, the number of people on personal um, uh, in, in independent payments, which is those are the two main forms of benefits for disabled people. The number of people that are sort of encouraged to get onto those has increased. Uh, uh, the level of success when people apply for it has gone up. And that, so there is an element to which the government, as you say, has created a whole culture of benefits, both for in-work benefits and out-of-work benefits, which is helping this idea that, you know, work is unimportant in life. You know, you get your gainful uh, income more from the state than you do get it from work. And so I think that idea of the, the sort of the broad expansion of state uh, dependency is an element in reinforcing this. So it's it's not just an attitudinal thing, there's an institutional element to it too, or structural element. Thank you very much indeed. That was uh, very, very useful. Um, Linda, could I bring you back in at this stage? There's so much flying around at the moment. I just thought it would give you an opportunity to push back or you know, comment on what's been said so far. Yeah, I mean, just just very briefly. I mean, I, I, I just Daniel's point in the beginning that um, about you know people people seem to be coming back to work. Uh, the old trends are reinserting themselves. I mean, I know in Phil's article and in, in Spike, he made this point. I've looked at figures myself, and and there, it's very very you know there are lots of different discussions going on about whether people are coming back, whether they're not. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't matter whether they're coming back or not, because the 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 whole degradation of work is, affects everybody, whether they're in work or out of work. So when people are coming back, and if they are coming back, they're coming back still with that estrangement. And I think that that you can really see that in some of the discussions. But well, if I go back. I'm only going to go work like one hour a week or I'm going to work on my terms. I'm going to work at home only. Or So it's all around uh, not the fact that they it, it's good that they make a social contribution through work, but that, that they see their work as important. 
um, to uh, society's progress. It's about you know me. Uh, so, so that kind of preservation idea that that Carlton was talking about is very pronounced in the reasons people may speak about why they're coming back to work. And you can really see that those who are coming back are already complaining. <laughs> Uh, there's lots of articles in the newspapers about how they're uh, stressed out and burnt out by it. So um, I, I too uh, really, I, I when I look at the figures of people in the UK on benefits, it's really quite shocking to me. Um, some commentators have made quite a lot of points that the UK is an outlier uh, after the pandemic of people coming back to work and all the other economies who had the same uh, levels of infection as us, um, people have returned much faster. Um, and I think that's because of the welfare state in this country, that it's, it's, the, our welfare state is, has created dependency. It has influenced, uh, it, you know, people are, are far more likely to be dependent on the state. And the way the benefit system is uh, growing um, to envelope more and more people in different categories, um, I think really lends itself to that idea of, of people not returning uh, perhaps as quickly as they would have if they'd been in another country uh, like America uh, or, or other places like that. So I think there is definitely uh, something to look at in, in that whole uh, idea of the, the the welfare state in this country is really quite a big factor um, impacting that idea that it's okay to be dependent it's okay not to sustain yourself by your own means uh that, that you can be you can be you can be given a handout um and um i mean there is there is a discussion going on in some of the more um uh, right-wing old right-wing kind of newspapers about how this was something that happened with tony blair and um gordon brown when they tried to create some kind of quality and benefits by introducing the um, universal credit, I think it was. Um, and that it, it meant that people, it wasn't worthwhile for people to work more than 16 hours. So there's a, ho a whole discussion going on about that that might be a useful um, thing to to look at. Okay, great. Um, but there's, there's some interesting points being made in the chat somebody i think gudrun saying about um that the nature of work has changed and that we do more service sector jobs and yet they seem to have very little status um in society but i would like to come back somehow at some point to the what we do about it as in how do we is there anything that we can do to re-establish that can that or undermine that estrangement from work. Um, and uh, I mean, maybe it's a multifactorial approach we need to take, I don't know, um, but uh, of which the welfare system might be a, a part of that. Um, Daniel. Yeah, well, this kind of relates to the welfare system because uh, I thought it'd be interesting to look at the stats in relation to the NHS and the medical sector which obviously also relates to the debate about ill health, uh, because there is a kind of popular discussion about, you know, there's not enough doctors, there's not enough uh, nurses, you know, COVID has made people really stressed and so on. That's, you know, that's not my view, that's the kind of popular view that's being presented. And it, it seems to me that 
although I completely agree with the fact that people who feel a bit down and miserable nowadays will often interpret that as ill health, mental ill health and so on, and that's an important factor. It seems to me there is an objective element to it, and it's some, but it's something that long predates the pandemic. It's not a new thing. Uh, and it's particularly interesting to look at doctors because doctors are, generally speaking, very well paid. I mean, maybe not at the very start of their career, but generally well paid. But again, looking at the statistics, there is a real sh uh, shortage of doctors in Britain, but that's been the case for a very long time. Uh, way before the pandemic, if you look at the number of doctors in Britain relative to the population, it's well below the OECD average, you know, the average for the developed countries. And it seems to me that that is an example of a lack of investment, because obviously if you're going to uh, train doctors, then it takes a decade or so, it takes a lot of money, it's an expensive thing to, to do. Uh, and to me, that's a key factor in explaining the, some of the problems in the, in the NHS, not the only factor. Uh, there is a dependency question to talk about as well, but it is a key factor. Uh, there's probably also a similar trend in relation to nurses. And then that does have a knock-on effect because I think people who are physically ill, uh, a lot, a lot, it is true that waiting lists have uh, increased enormously. A lot of people are waiting for operations. And in some cases, those people will want to work but will not be able to work or it will be difficult for them to work because they're waiting for hip replacement or some other kind of uh, medical treatment. They might have an inordinately long wait for it. So, uh, as I said, I think the subjective factor is really, really important to look at, but it does interact with some objective trends as well, I think. Uh, and I think the NHS is particularly interesting to look at in this respect. Okay, great. Uh, I'm going to take James Woodhouse and he's indicated he wants to come back in and then John Holbrook, and then please do put your hands up if you want to contribute. So James first. Are you there, James? Well, okay, I'll take John Holbrook and come back to James Woodhousen. Well, it's often said that the solution for all our problems is a war. And uh, I'm not advocating that, but I think it's worth asking the question, why do people say that? Because I'm sure it's true, actually. I mean, I'm sure if you look in Ukraine at the moment, you don't have a problem with the work ethic. Um, I'm sure you don't have people um, swinging the lead or people whinging about how hard they're having to work or people trying to avoid work. And there's a very simple reason for that, which is that the work they do is valued. Uh, valued in the sense that the people in Ukraine know that the, the survival of their nation is on the line. And uh, I think we can learn from that because I think one of the problems that we do have in our society at the moment is that um, we, we don't value anything. It's almost like nothing really matters. And one of the solutions, it seems to me, to this um, the work ethic problem that, that Linda's identified is that we have to ensure that people are, first of all, doing meaningful jobs. And one of the problems at the moment is that so many people are doing bullshit jobs. Um, you know, they're just shuffling bits of paper. They're sort of making sure that other people don't step out of line and just generally just trying to make themselves look busy, whereas actually they're hampering uh, any sort of meaningful endeavour. Um, and then when you do have people who are doing jobs or roles which are meaningful, 
they are also hampered because of all these other narratives that are going on, as we've talked about, you know, particularly well-being and wokery and political correctness and this, that and the other. So I, I just think fundamentally the problem here is that we've lost sense of the need for a collective endeavour. We've lost sight of the fact that work is actually what makes our society tick. It's what makes it worthwhile. And, you know, people shouldn't look upon work as a handicap. People should look upon work as their contribution to society. And it's fundamentally the loss of that entire ethos which um, which has undermined the, the, the workplace and corroded the work ethic that, that Linda has spoken of. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, any other um, people who want to come in? James, did you want to come in? No, if I may. Um, yes, please. I hesitate to bring in two more tangents, but uh, that's the nature of cal- culture, uh, really. Um, just, uh, you know, this report on the four-day week, uh, it wasn't Ernst & Young just for once talking the bullshit. Uh, very much involved in it is a, a, a green consultancy. I don't know whether it was the one referred to before. Um, autonomy, if you please. And um, uh, they are carbonistas. And I think we can't avoid the discussion on climate change because part of what's driving all this nothing matters stuff is don't go to work because that only makes things worse from a climate point of view. We saw all of that in the lockdown and working from home and so on. And, uh, you know, I think that is part of the uh, part of the culture that makes people suspect, you know, even data centers uh, sending an email, you know, uh, it used to be, do you have to print this letter? Now it's, do you have to send this email because of the uh, climate impact? So I think, Linda, I'm sorry to add to your workload, oops, uh, but I think the, the climate discussion is kind of in there, you know, in the general sense of estrangement, anomie, uh, energy use in buildings and all of that. And the second thing, obviously we can't completely avoid, uh, I don't believe it's a digression, is uh, the gender discussion because work itself is regarded and this is what Dominic Raab is all about as a kind of masculine enterprise you know if you say that was terrible that's something women don't say you know only the Dominic Raabs of this world are supposed to say that Uh, and therefore you know nurturing motherhood uh, childcare and so on that's that's exonerated, but sort of kicking ass in the workplace, leave aside blue collar jobs, um, you know, is kind of uh, regarded with particular uh, disdain. That's what toxic, you know, toxic bosses actually, I'm told, and the women here can confirm, if you're a woman, the worst kind of boss is a woman. Uh, but nevertheless, the general toxic bosses uh, are men. And just to connect the two themes, um, looking at the autonomy website, and obviously that and the even the involvement of our old friends, the CIPD in the survey, you never learn what the server, who the sample was. It's all self-reported. Don't know what the questionnaires were uh, and, and, and all the rest of it, whether people were telling the truth. But I, I noticed in the um, autonomy website, uh, it's all got up by um, some... 
you know, UBI people, Nick Srinjek or whoever it was, uh, you know, um, the fully automated everything and all of that kind of tradition. Uh, but autonomy itself favors feminist energy systems. That's an interesting idea. Uh, so they're, they're, they're trying to connect up, you know, the special plight of women at work, the energy use at work and going to work, uh, and um, their general hostility to work and their sympathy for, for UBI. So it's always worth doing a bit of forensic research to know where these people are coming from. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the other thing I was going to say earlier was about um, back in the 1990s, I worked in the timber yard and uh, every so often a man in a very bright yellow jacket, who I think was called an operational auditor, uh, came in and checked all our paperwork. And in the process of doing the paperwork one day, um, he cut his finger on a staple and he wrote it up in the accident book, the otherwise empty accident book, uh, to, to much uh, sort of satirical comment from uh, everybody else around him. But I imagine that that is just like what workplaces are like today <laughs> from the sound of it. Um, I do want to see, what the, lots of people haven't spoken so far, just anybody got an opinion on what you could do about this that might give us a sense of, Apart from starting World War Three, I'll give John Holbrook the uh, credit on that one. Possibly not the most practical solution, but what could we do about it that would make um, work more meaningful again in a practical sense? Um, Carlton Brook. Sorry, I, I've spoken before, but uh, I'll, I'll speak again. Um, in danger of sounding a bit like James, kind of. Uh, nothing wrong with sounding like James at all, but I'm going to talk about kind of micromanagement and the kind of, which seems to be the dominant expression of kind of the workplace uh, manager employee, employee relationship, which is that everything is micromanaged to the nth degree. It, and it seems to me that that kind of touches upon some of the things that Daniel was talking about in terms of, uh, the NHS, but a kind of my experience as an academic, which is supposed to be a job that I have a certain amount of freedom to and uh, to take my own initiative and develop ideas and modules. But even to the extent that those those jobs that are seen as being ha having meaningful uh, content and kind of freedom have become ultimately kind of micromanaged. Uh, so maybe the kind of I think Linda touched on this in in, in some of the things that she was raising is the kind of the, uh, and to kind of borrow from James the kind of autonomy in the workplace a kind of an attempt to try and establish at least some semblance that the individual worker individual employee has responsibility for what they do uh, in you can certainly see that in spheres that I work in education and. Uh, and the public sector more generally, where there seems to be a climate where workers are not allowed that responsibility, that everything is micromanaged, everything has become instrumentalized, everything has become a tick box exercise that's kind of that, that, that. And I think kind of a lot of this is, this is perhaps the objective factor that Daniel is touching upon is, is a symptom of that. Uh, is a symptom of that kind of instrumentalized nature of work. So in Scotland, there is a very much a, there's been a protracted, long-term protracted problem of uh, recruitment in and out of the 
NHS, particularly in nurses. Nurses join, then they leave. And I, I teach nurses uh, and um, as part of the program where at the university I'm at. And I, I kind of think a lot of it is to do with the fact that they enter a job thinking they're going to help people and they get swamped by these kind of management speak, technical form filling exercises, even at the level of being a nurse, which you now need a degree to go into, which, uh, you know, it's kind of so there is this very real almost Kafka-esque uh, net that kind of binds us and, and kind of swallows us up in, in our work. And I kind of think a lot of our dissatisfaction at work is a consequence of that. But the only way that we are allowed to express it is through the the the, the, the framework of well-being. Um, you know, so it's kind of the, the only legitimate response to this constraining of our kind of autonomy and our ability to judge and be responsible workers is that our only recourse to it is to become sick or to kind of present our well-being as somehow being threatened by uh, the, the the work climate so i think how we untangle that I, I don't really know but i think there is a case to be made that you kind of we as workers have to start expressing our kind of autonomy uh, as workers to some degree. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Right. Well, I don't see enough a great flurry of hands. So I, I think perhaps at this point is a good good time to bring Linda back into trying to sum up this discuss, discussion. And certainly when I, I first put forward or had this idea that we, we really, really ought to talk about um, these labour shortages and whatever, that my focus was very much more on the million vacancies rather than the five million people on welfare benefits and i think that that's it's very interesting and how that fits into a broader picture of, of everything that's going on in terms of the labor market and the world of work um, has been very very useful but linda your closing comments um i i this is actually quite a really a really hard discussion um and I thought that I thought a lot of the points that were made are really good, um, and I've written them down and uh, researched them a bit more. I mean, I kind of I, I really agree with what Carlton was saying, um, and you know, him and I have discussed this about a certain year of autonomy in the workplace, and you know, th there are some people who have said that's what these public sector um would be strikers ought to do instead of going and strike and hurting the people who they're supposed to serve it would be far more effective for them to say right I'm not going to do that aspect I'm going to do this aspect I'm going to stop ticking boxes and I know in the chat it says we would get sacked for that well you know I'm afraid in order to begin to change things these things are going to happen you know we can't we're going to have to stand up but some of the adults in the room are going to have to stand up and, and make a stand on this stuff because if we can't encourage people to make a social contribution to society, because that's what we're talking about here, um, then we're in big, really deep, deep trouble, you know, because um, it means that if people can't see their place in the world as supporting the rest of the world or supporting the rest of society, and have a moral obligation to do that, 
I think that's very, very, very problematic for a whole load of a whole load of things. And you can really see that in the young. Um, you know, Phil made the point that the numbers of people who are calling sick uh, in the over fifties it's because of their back and their their bones and and multiskeletal uh, reasons. But in the young, it's overwhelmingly, I can't handle this. I'm not up to this. Um, my mental health is impacted, and that's extremely frightening. Added to that, you've got this, they have no idea that it's important for them to make a, a, a social contribution. Um, you know, I'm always inclined to say we should make work obligatory. You know, we should we should say to people, you have to work, um, you know, because your contribution is important. I mean, I know that we, I'm not saying that we put them into bullshit jobs and stuff like that, but we maybe ought to begin to think about making work something that people feel more um, obliged to do. Now, I know in the chat people are calling me conservative and so on and so forth. Um, I don't really care. I think that that's, I think it's important that we try and uh, you know, think of ways that we can get people to understand the importance of their contribution to making society, because it is work, as James Woodhousen says, that makes society. Um, and we need to be able to see our, our contribution to that and value our contribution to that. So, you know, I'm kind of much more in favour of this kind of like, uh, let's, let's, you know, let's get some ideas about how we can uh, get young people in particular to, to feel that they should get back and in, get into the workplace and they should make a contribution. Um, I don't know how we do that. Um, I'm not trying to say we should have a form of conscription or something like that, but you know, it might be uh, um, policies like that that we have to think about endorsing. Um, uh, so yeah, apart from that, I don't really have anything else to say. But thank you. <laughs> from from World War Three to conscription, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, now it's time for the always unsatisfactory round of applause for our speaker on Zoom. But let's give it a go anyway. <laughs> Thank you, thank you all. Uh, yeah, I, I, so just to um, to finish up, um, uh, thank you for your all your contributions uh, tonight. If you would like to support um, the uh, the Academy of Ideas, it'd be very um, uh, very useful. Um, uh, again, um, it's academyofideas.org.uk forward slash support. If you'd like to uh, uh, contribute to that. In terms of uh, relevant meetings going on, if any of you are in London next week, there is a debate um, run by our colleagues at the Education Forum about the teacher strikes and about how street teacher, but with former and current teachers talking about how they go about um, uh, getting uh, a pay rise. I'll, I'll, I'll get that into the, the, the chat as well, but it echoes some of the things that Linda was saying there about how you um, approach um, the, the, the question of, you know, pushing back against rules rather than necessarily closing schools, which happens uh, all too easily in the past few years. Uh, but that's it. Um, thank you very much for all, all your contributions and uh, please do join us again in the Economy Forum again soon. <laughs>